Well, good morning, guys. How are we? It's great to have all of you here with us this morning. So glad that you are, are joining us and are part of our, our time together this morning. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to, to Mark 1. That's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning as we continue in our series, Walking Through the Gospel of Mark. And we are going to do so in a slow pace, but I think it's a good pace nonetheless, as we study through the book of Mark through at least two, maybe three summers, uh, we'll be going through this book together. And so it's Mark 1, verse 9 through 20, as we just read, is where we're going to be today. So I don't know about you guys, has anyone ever been to like a restaurant and gotten like a, a sampler platter? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like when you go somewhere and it's just like you don't really know what you want, but there's this like sampler where you can just kind of try a little bit of everything. There was a restaurant back in the States that used to have like an, uh, a starter appet or, or like a starter platter where you could get like eight different starters as a meal. It was fantastic. It was like you didn't really have to commit to one thing. You could have a little bit of everything. When Tiffany and I first started eating Indian food at Nakshi, they had this like as their Sunday, like, uh, Grant is shaking his head no, and we, we can fight about that later. Uh, but like, they used to have this like, like sampler thing where you didn't, we didn't really know what we wanted, but you could go there and there'd be like three meats, there'd be like a little bit of, of your starter, there'd be like a bunch of random things together. And then like, as we continued to do that, we started to get an idea of kind of what we liked and kind of got an idea of like the foods that we did like, the foods that we didn't like. And maybe for you, that whole idea is, is lost on you. But think about like a church meal, right? When you come and have a church meal together, you don't just go and get like a whole plate full of one thing. Most of us don't. Like we get like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and then we get, a, we get a side, we get a little bit of dessert or a lot of bit of dessert. Like we just start getting quite a bit of like all this stuff together. And like our meal isn't very cohesive, but at the end, like it's a meal, right? At the end, we, we're full. We've, we've eventually got there. And in a weird way, that's kind of the way Mark's gospel works. Like as you read through the story, it's just like there's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And he just kind of jumps from thing to thing, from thing to thing. Mark's favorite word in his gospel is actually the Greek word that's translated for us immediately. 42 times in 16 chapters, Mark uses the word immediately because he is just telling us really quickly. He is telling us the story of Jesus. He is rushing through this story. He wants to get the story of Jesus into the hands of people so that they can know about, about Jesus. They can know the story about Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection. And what we find with Mark's gospel, he flies through the three years of Jesus's ministry and then slows down as we get to the end when it gets to the last week of Jesus's life. And so Mark, he just wants us to do this. And in the passage that we just read, like we just, we just look, there's four big events that ended up happening in those 12 verses. There was Jesus's baptism, his temptation by Satan, Jesus like starting his ministry and calling his disciples. 12 verses, four things happened. Mark just like boom, 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 boom. And he's just flying through the story. And like, as we begin to, to look at this, like we can start to see if we lay these stories together, there is a common thread that's being woven, weaved, woven yeah woven through these things and there's something that's drawing this all together but it seems like like every one of these stories we could we could camp out on together like we could take one sermon for each one of these stories it would take us like 17 summers to get through it if we did it that way but there's something that as we begin to look through this we can begin to see what mark is doing for us and really simply put like as we begin to to lay these stories side by side we start to see mark is setting up and, and letting us know about the authority 
of Jesus, about the, the lordship of Jesus. He is letting us know, like, that is who he is. This is how Mark is starting his gospel and letting us know about his authority. Now, when you think of someone in authority, who is the first person you think of? When you think of someone in authority, feel free to shout it out or say it out loud, whatever. Like, who is the first person or first people you think of when you think of someone in authority? Politicians, yep, political leaders. The, the guards, the police, yeah, good. What's that? Your dad, yeah. I think of myself as a parent to my kid, as like a person of authority. Anyone else think of someone? All right, I think we, we captured the, the majority of them. And so like we, when we think of people of authority, like we, we, we have something in mind. This week, I was actually reading about the authority principle. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. But what this principle says, in short, is you are more likely to do something, very much more likely to do something, if someone in authority asks you to do it, opposed to someone who is in, not in authority. And like, in a, on a basic level, that makes sense, right? Like, because if your boss comes and asks you to do something, you're a lot more likely to do it than, say, a coworker comes and asks you to do something. But, but consider this research. Here's what we found. Imagine you are, this is, this is a quote from the research, so. Imagine that you are with a friend outside at a restaurant and a security guard comes up to you or, or a police officer or guard comes up to you and says, hey, that guy over there, his parking has ran out. He's about to be clamped and he doesn't have any money to pay for parking. G can you go and give him some money? I think most of us, if we did, like most of us, statistically speaking, would go and give him something, right? Like, the study says 92% of people went and, and paid for his parking. Now, this comes again. They do the exact same experiment again. This time, it's someone in civilian clothing comes. And they, 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 the same concept, the same idea, the same statement, the same question. 92% listened to the security guard and went and gave them money to pay for parking. You take away the security guard outfit, clothing, whatever, that number drops to 42%. Only 42% of people ended up listening when it wasn't someone in authority. So clearly, like, authority matters. And so this is what Mark is doing for us in his gospel. He is setting up at the very beginning who Jesus is, the authority in which he has, because authority matters. So we read through this gospel. We see, or we read through our, our 12 verses. Mark is saying, like, Jesus has the authority over over Satan. He has authority as God's son. He has authority to call his own disciples. So let me set the stage this way. Here's what we're going to be discussing today. We talk about the authority and the ministry of Jesus is getting started here. Is the ministry of Jesus is one that calls us away from ourselves and into the kingdom life in which everything revolves around him. Not wordy at all, I know. But here's the idea. This is the premise that we're going to be operating on, is Jesus is calling us into a mission, into a ministry, into a life that's not, no longer all about me, but rather every decision, every dream, every plan, every single thing that I do revolves around, around Jesus and around his mission and around his kingdom. So let's look. Mark chapter 1, let's read the first little blurb that happens in Mark's gospel, verses 9 through 11. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up from the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, you bring me great joy. 
I love as we read Mark's gospel compared to Matthew and Luke's. Like as we read Matthew and Luke's gospel, they go in painstaking detail to discuss the, the birth of Jesus, to discuss like how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And they go through like these genealogies of Jesus to show us like the way that, that Jesus connects to David or connects all the way back to Abraham or all the way back to, to Adam. And, and Mark says, one day Jesus came. Like, that's, that's how he jumps in. And this is, this is Mark's gospel. He just flies through things very, very quickly. But I love this little detail that we find in Mark's gospel in verse, 11, or verse 10. It says this, Jesus came out of the water. He saw the heavens splitting open. Here's the cool thing we see about, about Jesus' ministry in Mark's gospel. Is it begins with something splitting open? And it ends with something splitting open. Like Mark's gospel bookends Jesus's ministry with something being split open. So to start with, it's the sky that we see that is torn in two, that is split open. If we fast, or fast forward all the way to the end of the story in, in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, it's the curtain in the temple when Jesus dies that is split open. The exact same phrase, exact same word that we see here. This is the way Mark books, bookends his gospel. And heaven is, is a place that, that we tend to think this is, where, this is where God resides. This is where God is, is he is in heaven. That's where, that's where we tend to think. Then in, the, in this idea of the temple, this is where God's presence, this is where God, like in the holy of the holy is where the, the curtain would, would block off people from the ark, from where God's presence lit, laid and where it stayed and where it lied. When Jesus is, dies, that splits open. And so what we begin to see is that through Jesus, Full access is available to God, that we are able to have full access to God because Jesus has come and because what Jesus has done. So Jesus comes and he splits open things and things remain changed forever. That's the authority that he has. His access to God is now available because of Jesus through Jesus. Let's look again in verse 11. Let's continue reading our story. So he's baptized. He comes up out of the water. And here's the voice of God speaking. He says, you are my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. I want you guys to catch that phrase. You bring me great joy. I just want you to maybe close your eyes for just a second. And imagine God saying that to you. Luke, you fill in your own name. You bring me great joy. Like, just imagine that feeling. Like, like, I want that for my life. And this is what God is saying to Jesus. And here's the truth. Is when we do the will of God, it brings him and us great joy. Like, this is incredible. Like, when we do God's will, it does bring God joy. But it doesn't just bring God joy. It brings us joy as well. And I think the type of joy is really important for us. You guys catch that? It is great joy. It's not just like partial joy. It's not like almost joy. No, it is like great joy. And just as a show of hands, could anyone in the room use a little more joy in their life? Anyone at all? I have never had a conversation with someone who said, you know what? Whew, my face hurts too much from smiling. Too much joy here. I can't have any more. Or, or someone said, no, my heart just hurts from being so happy. I can't have any more joy in my life. I've never met someone who said that. Like, because we all could have more joy in our lives. You want to have more joy in your life? Try doing the will of God. 
Try doing the things that God desires for you. Try doing the things that God wants for you. Try reading your Bible. And not just reading it, but but doing what it says. Try practicing the spiritual disciplines that we spend a lot of time talking about. Try doing these things that God desires for us. Try being in community, living out his mission. Try doing these things. And in those things, we will find, we'll find great joy. And what, what we see is like by doing God's will, it brings God joy. When Jesus does that, we can do we can do the same thing. And that spirit that, that Jesus has is the same spirit that's available to us is this Holy Spirit. And so it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And now as we begin to read through this, this story, we read through Jesus' baptism, like what I, want to, what I find fascinating is, is Mark really doesn't a- answer any questions for us. He doesn't answer the question of why Jesus is baptized. Like earlier, Mark talks about like repent of your sins and, and be baptized. Does Jesus need to repent of his sins? For the, does he need forgiveness of his sins? Like, I hope not or we're all in trouble. Like, like we, Mark doesn't answer that question. He doesn't tell us why Jesus is baptized. He doesn't really say like why he's doing this, what he's doing this for. No, his focus though is on the identity of, of who Jesus is. This is where Mark focuses on that he is my dearly loved son. This is where Mark is putting the emphasis of this story to remind us the authority that Jesus has, that he is the son of God. And this statement that my dear son, like, who brings me great joy, like this is loaded in Old Testament imagery from, from Genesis to Psalm to Isaiah. And that like eight words is quoted like multiple times. We see this popping up here. And so to Mark, Jesus's baptism is about proving the divinity of Jesus, proving that he is God's son. So let's continue reading on in the story. Verse 12 and 13. Then the Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. Like, I love the way Mark flies through this. He literally takes 40 days in two verses. And, and as we read, once again, Matthew and Luke, like they both spend 10 plus verses discussing the temptation of Jesus. Mark does it in three statements. He goes to the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. He's out with the wild animals and the angels take care of him. That's all that we get. He doesn't even tell us that Jesus beats temptation. It's assumed from the story. But like Mark doesn't even tell us this. He just plows through the story for us. But I think the chief purpose that he's doing for us is to let us know, once again, the uniqueness of the character, the uniqueness of the person of Jesus. He's letting us know this is who he is. But although, like Mark's description of the temptation story is is very short, there's still some really important things for us to learn. I think first is it sets the stage for what Jesus is going to do in his entire ministry is it's assumed like that Jesus defeats Satan. And, and we, we, we see that in the other two Gospels. And so Mark is setting the stage. It's like here is an early encounter with Satan, and Jesus defeats him. And throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus is going to continue to defeat him. Jesus is going to heal people who are sick, casting out demons, getting rid of disease. He is ultimately going to defeat Satan on the cross, and he's going to raise from the dead. And Mark is setting the stage very, very early and saying, Satan may be powerful, but the authority that Jesus has, so much greater, so much more, so much better. And this is what we see. And, and it's, it's really subtle. But I think the next thing that Mark shows for us in this, this temptation story, it's a bit more 
bit more nuanced, but I think it's important for us. It's in verse 12. Let's read this again. It says, The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. And that word compelled, as we look at the Greek, that is a very powerful, a very pointed, a very strong word. This word can be translated as being thrown out, expelled, driven out, sent out. And so what he's saying is like Jesus is being compelled. He is being sent out. He is being expelled. He is being like taken out into the wilderness. Now, I think it's important for us to realize like Jesus isn't like some helpless victim here who's being dragged out in the wilderness under like, like as a hostage. Like he's not, the, the Holy Spirit hasn't bound his hands and feet and like dragging him out to the wilderness. That's not what's beginning to happen here. But I think what's so important for us is what Mark is setting up here is now the decision making maker in, in Jesus's life is not just his own desires anymore. <laughs> It's what the Spirit wants. And so Jesus has aligned his life and aligned his will with the will of the Spirit. And I just gotta, I gotta ask, what do you do when the Spirit compels you? What do you do? Jesus goes into the wilderness because the Spirit has compelled him. What do you do when the Spirit compels you? Do you listen? Immediately act, do what the Spirit tells you? Do you argue with the Spirit, trying to tell him, hey, it's not a good time for me right now, but, but maybe later, like, okay, I can't talk to that person right now, but next week when I see them again, then I'll do it. Like, is that what you do when the Spirit compels you? Do you spend your time convincing the Spirit of why it's not a convenient time, and, and you can do it again later, knowing you fully well, knowing fully well, you don't plan on doing it later? Or do you, do you listen to the Spirit? Do you do what the Spirit tells you to do? Like when we are compelled by the Spirit, what are, we, what are we doing? As followers of Jesus, we are to walk in step with the Spirit. We are to listen to the Spirit. We are to do what the Spirit tells us to do. Simply put, the follower of Jesus aligns their will with the will of the Spirit. This is, this is what we do. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about what I want to do. It's no longer about what, what my dreams and my plans and my thoughts or, or my to-do list says. It's, it's about what the Holy Spirit is telling me to do as I am going to align my life with the will of the Spirit and saying, you are the decision maker of my life. And once again, when we do this, guess what we can get too? We can get great joy. And so I think, I think we would all do well to eliminate the word no from our vocabulary when it comes to conversations with the Holy Spirit. But I think for most of us, we, we're not, I don't think we're always bold enough to say no. I think we'd be really wise to eliminate later from our conversation or, or maybe next time from our being compelled by the Holy Spirit. Because even if it's awkward or uncomfortable or difficult, it doesn't matter. Because we have aligned our lives with the Spirit. We are doing what the Spirit compels us to do. And this, once again, it isn't, it isn't a miserable life. It's a life that can bring great joy. We've already, we've already discussed that. <clears throat> Let's keep looking. Let's keep reading. Let's see what else is going on. <clears throat> Verse 14 and 15. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee where he preached God's good news. The, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, if you're, if you're a parent in the room, 
you guys remember the first thing that your kids said, right? Like you remember that moment when your kid like said something that you could at least understand what they were saying. Like, I think most of us can probably remember that. Or if you think about like, even if you're not a parent, maybe it's a significant other who said something to you. Maybe like, I love you for the first time. Like those are things that, that we remember. Like I remember when Ava and Emma first said Dada. And like, I remember those moments. And like a month ago, Emma just started replying back, love ya. When you say, when I say love you to her, she'll say la ya. And like, I, I can remember that. I remember those moments. And now like, all I have to do is look at her like Emma. And she'll smile and say, love ya. And like, those are things I, I hope that I'm never going to forget. These first words, these first things that, that our kids say. And what we see here in now, we get the first words that Jesus speaks for us. Mark's gospel was the first one that was written, the first one that was given out. And so we find the very first re- recorded words of Jesus. And he says this, Jesus' first thing that he says is, the time promised by God has come at last. And I love that. Essentially, what Jesus is telling us is like all of those promises that you read about, all of those promises that we've been looking forward to, they're here because I am here. The promise that all scripture points to has arrived in Jesus. Jesus, he is the conclusion of the story of Israel that starts all the way back in Genesis with with Abraham. All of these promises that have been made throughout the Old Testament Old Testament of of redemption, of renewal, of things being set right, of of a new kingdom. All these promises that have been made have arrived in Jesus. And the just sidebar, like the Old Testament is important. And as a church, like one of the reasons that we will we will teach through the Old Testament is because we believe that it's important. We believe that the Bible is a continual, a complete story pointing us to Jesus. And the Old Testament it teaches us a lot of important things for the New Testament. And the thing is, like when we read the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament are assuming that we have read the Old Testament. And there's so many things that have been connected here. Like Jesus is, he's the the promise that's, that's arrived. And he goes on to say, like the kingdom of God is near. And so what Jesus is letting us know, he's saying, hey, the kingdom where God has set up his full rule and reign on earth, it's here. It's, it's near because it's literally near because I'm here. Jesus is saying, I'm here. It is near. It is, it's, it's, it's set up. The rule that God has established is, is here through Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 15, again, he says, repent of your sins and believe the good news. And here's, here's the important thing for us. Not only do we need to repent of our sins, but Jesus goes on to say, we need to believe The good news. To repent isn't just turning away from sin, but turning to God and pursuing him wholeheartedly. I think this is really important for us because what ends up happening here is we see this word, this verb believe, when it says believe the good news, this word carries with it the idea of like a full hearted commitment. It's not just this mental exercise of saying, okay, I I think really hard. I believe I'm good to go. No, this is not it's, it's physical. It's things that we're doing. This isn't just mental. This is active things. Like I can say, I believe exercise is good for me. Why I sit on the couch eating a bowl of popcorn and watching Netflix. Like I can say, I believe it, but if I don't do it, like what's going to, are you going to believe me? I can say, Hey, I should get enough sleep. Well, I'm like, Hey, you want to watch another episode? Like I can say, I believe that's important, 
But if my actions don't back it up, like, you would doubt my claims. If I say that I should be kind to my kids or kind to my wife, and you just hear me all the time yelling and screaming at my kids, you're going to be like, are you sure you actually believe that? And so what Jesus is saying is like, what we need to do is not just to like say we believe, but actually do what we believe. We have to have this thing acting out. Not only do we repent from our sin, but we turn to the good news. We turn to Jesus. The idea here isn't just to turn from like alcoholism to like drugs. The idea here isn't to turn from like one bad relationship, repent of that, and I'll turn to another relationship. The idea here isn't to say, okay, I I spend too much time at work. I'm going to turn away from that, repent of that, and I'm going to go spend way too much time doing a hobby. That's not the idea here. The idea is like we turn away and we turn, we turn to Jesus. We pursue the good news. We pursue the gospel. We pursue him. That's what, that's repentance. It's not just turning from one thing to another and hoping for the best. It's turning to Jesus and going after him wholeheartedly and fully. Let's keep reading what Jesus is saying for us. 16 through 20. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's son, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands. Once again, maybe more clearly than anything else we've read, we see the authority of Jesus being set up for us here in two simple statements. Come follow me. And he called them. Jesus' call to his disciples, it indicates this ultimate authority. Because what would have happened in that day, like there were there were plenty of teachers, like rabbis, that, that, that Jesus is called to be a rabbi. And so what would have happened is, is would-be disciples would have searched out, would have gone after the rabbi and say, Hey, can can I be your follower? And the rabbi would say yes or no. But what Jesus does is complete opposite. Jesus goes to the would-be disciples, his would-be followers, and say, Come and follow me. And this is completely opposite and completely backwards of anything that we would have seen and is showing his his authority, his lordship here. And so Jesus says, come and follow me. And and see what else he says, though. He says, and I will show you how to fish for people. I love this. Like Jesus isn't just saying, hey, come follow me. We're going to camp out in this secluded place for the rest of our lives and, and we're just going to sit around and be, be happy together and, and life's going to be good for you. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, no, come follow me and I will teach you how to be fishers of men. I will teach you how to fish for people. So Jesus is saying, hey, to be a follower is to have a very heart, a concern for other people. He's saying like, your life is not just going to be about you anymore. It's not just going to be about that. It's going to be about searching out other people, for loving other people. As followers of Jesus, like there is always an emphasis on others, other people's needs, other people's desires, other people's hearts, other people's souls, other people's rights. Like there is always an emphasis on that as a follower of Jesus. And this is what he's saying, like life is no longer just going to be about you. Your, your nine to five is not about just going and getting money anymore. We are going to be about 
caring for the needs of other people, their greatest need in caring for them. So, so this week, I, uh, I started doing some, some closet cleaning out at my house. And, and so like, this, is, this has actually been a, a really emotional time. Um, <clears throat> it's funny enough, yes. Like, uh, so Tiffany and I finished reading a chapter of the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it was talking about simplicity. And like, I've been thinking through like, a lot. Like, I probably don't need 40 plaid shirts give or take like three. Like I probably don't need that many shirts in my closet, but like I've attempted multiple times to like start getting rid of them, but there's just like some part of me that just doesn't want to do it. Like it was just some part of me that like, I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And finally, like this week I figured out what it was. Is like I had actually wrapped up quite a bit of my identity in plaid shirts. Seems weird. But here's what began to happen. The church that I worked at in the States, like I had to dress up like every single day. And so every single day, I would wear a plaid shirt. About 362 out of 365 days a year, you would see me and I would be wearing a plaid shirt. Like, that was, like I even like convinced myself that they're comfortable to lounge in. I don't know why I did that. But like, I was just like plaid shirts and I, like, I had wrapped up so much of me in this and like getting rid of them was like, it felt like I was just getting rid of part of me, part of my identity. And it's silly and it's stupid. I can say that. Like, it's about me. Like, as silly and as stupid as that is, on such a much bigger, bigger level, man, that's what these guys are doing, right? They're literally leaving their identity behind. They're leaving what they were, who they were. James and John, Andrew and, and Simon or, or Peter, they are leaving these things behind. Look at this again in verse 18 and verse 20. Jesus says, hey, come follow me. It says they left their nets at once and followed him. Verse 20 says this, they followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat. And here's the truth we've got to get. There is nothing worth clinging to at the expense of the kingdom. There is nothing in life worth holding on to that causes us to miss the kingdom. Nothing. And I want us just to see the things that these guys walk away from. They walk away from money and they walk away from stability. Like they're, they're fishermen like, and, they're, and they're, they're walking away from this. They're, they're, they're saying, okay, that's the, my life, what I've done and made money for the rest of my life, the way that I, my plans that I've had laid out for me, they're walking away from that. And I think it's really important for us to notice about the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Like if we read their story, we saw it here, they have nets they have boats, they have hired men. Like this is a pretty decent size operation. These guys are probably living a, a pretty fairly comfortable middle-class life. And now Jesus is saying, hey, come live with me. Let's be homeless. And like, they're, like, they're leaving the stability. They're leaving this money and they're walking away from it. But not only that, they are leaving their comforts. They are leaving the norm. Like, I don't want us to miss the cultural context that is happening with James and John. They leave their father behind. And you know, like when we, when we read that in our, in our 21st century ears, we're like, oh, you know, a bird's got to spread his wings and fly. Or, oh, they got to leave the nest sometime. Like, maybe that's what we think. But that's, that's not what's happening here. In Jesus' day, and even still in parts of the world today, like to leave your family was the worst possible thing that you could do. It was a fate worse than death. 
In order to do that, these guys would have been shunned. They would have been despised. They never would have been welcomed back in this kind of community again. To walk away from your family was one of the worst possible things that you could do. Oddly enough and funny enough, a little later, Jesus does the same thing. He says, my, my father in heaven is greater than my family, so he walks away from this. These guys have, have drawn a line in the sand. I'm like, okay, I am willing to leave behind the, the norms. I am well, willing to leave behind everything for the sake of the kingdom. Because they, they, they realize that there is nothing worth clinging to that's more important than the kingdom. There's nothing greater. And, and Jesus' authority, it's, it's so much more. It's so much greater. And maybe for you, like when we talk about there's nothing worth clinging to for the sake of the kingdom, you can, maybe, maybe you've got some things in your mind that you're, you're, you're holding on to. Maybe there's some things that in your life that you're just like, I don't know, God. I, I can give you everything. Just, 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 can I keep this one thing? You already know the answer, but you're, you're, you're trying to argue with them anyway. Maybe it's, maybe it's that relationship and you've been in this relationship for so long and you've got so much time tied up in it. It's like, I, I just want to hold on to this. Or, or maybe it's that, that, that sinful habit that you know like you need to, to deal with, you need, know you need to get rid of, but you, you just want to hold on to this. I don't, I don't know what it may be for you. But I think most of us, we maybe have this thing that we're holding where we're like, okay, you, do you realize how big this is? Do you realize how difficult this is? Yeah, it might be hard, but, but James and John leave their dad in a boat with their coworkers and they walk away because that's what Jesus is worth. He is worth leaving everything behind for. There is nothing on earth that is worth clinging to greater than King Jesus because he, he's king, he's Lord. He has the greatest authority and he's asking us, Come follow me. What are you going to do? Are we going to, are we going to follow? Are we going to live for him? And here's the thing, friends, is there's no such thing as half measures. There's no like half in, half out. There's none of that. It's, it's, it's all in. And I love what Paul, in, in Philippians 3, Paul kind of does a little summary of his life. And I think this is good for us to do every once in a while, to look back at our lives to see the things that we've accumulated, to see the things that we've clinged to, to see the things that we thought were so significant. Paul does that in, in Philippians 3. And here's, here's what he says, though, in verses 7 and 8. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. If Mark is right, and Jesus has ultimate authority, if Mark is right, and he is the Son of God, if Mark is right, and he is king, then everything we're holding on to is rubbish compared to him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. God, we thank you for who you are.